This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Time magazine loved Ted Kennedy in his final years. In the mid to late aughts, the weekly magazine published a number of profiles on the long-serving senator as he began to succumb to health issues, seemingly signaling that his time on this earth was coming to an end. They wrote of his suffering, how he had persevered through the tragic assassinations of his brothers, John and Robert Kennedy, and his own physical trauma from a 1964 plane crash that left him in chronic pain. The articles covered his political legacy, naming him as the Lion of the Senate, crediting him for supporting Barack Obama in the Democratic primaries, and leading him toward his nomination for president. His political record comes up too. By 2008, Ted Kennedy was the third longest serving senator in the history of the union, with eight consecutive terms serving the people of Massachusetts and America at large. What the illustrious magazine failed to mention in these series of profiles was the great black mark of Ted Kennedy's career. In July of 1969, in the middle of the night, Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts and crashed into a pond. The car quickly sank. Kennedy managed to escape, but his passenger, 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny, was pinned. She drowned in the dark. Ted Kennedy did not report the incident for 10 hours. What happened during that time has led to numerous theories about timelines, intentions, drunk driving, and cover-ups orchestrated by powerful individuals. All of it swirls around the question, what really happened that night? What exactly did Ted Kennedy get away with? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. Mm, But sometimes it's not. This is our second and final episode on the Chappaquiddick incident of 1969, when rising star Senator Ted Kennedy crashed his car into a pond on Chappaquiddick Island. The incident resulted in the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, and to this day there are questions regarding how she died, 
why she was in the car, and what led Ted Kennedy to wait 10 hours before notifying the authorities that he had left a woman trapped in a submerged vehicle. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. And we'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and Muhammad Ali's ban from the boxing ring. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on the Chappaquiddick incident of 1969, when rising star Senator Ted Kennedy crashed his car into a pond on Chappaquiddick Island. The incident resulted in the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, and to this day, there are questions regarding how she died, why she was in the car, and what led Ted Kennedy to wait 10 hours before notifying the authorities that he had left a woman trapped in a submerged vehicle. The Chappaquiddick incident is among the most famous political scandals in American history and is seen as the key reason that Ted Kennedy never had the chance to follow in his brother's footsteps for a real shot at a presidential run. But the legacy of the entire affair is inherently problematic, in no small part because we tend to refer to it as a political scandal and not a case of manslaughter. Over the past 10 years, ever since Ted Kennedy passed away, it has come to be accepted that the real story of Chappaquiddick may never be known. After all, the two people who were in the car that night are both dead and gone. In this episode, we're going to examine the unanswered questions that still swirl today over the Chappaquiddick incident. Our first conspiracy theory is that Ted Kennedy's account of when he left the party and when he crashed is false. This is best evidenced by the so-called missing hour between when Ted Kennedy left the party and when he was supposedly spotted by a sheriff's deputy over an hour later. Our second conspiracy theory is that Ted Kennedy was intoxicated or otherwise impaired that night and that this was the reason for both the crash and his actions immediately following it. Finally, Ted Kennedy waited 10 hours before he reported the crash. It's been suggested, though obviously never proven, that Mary Jo lived for much longer than initially suspected, and that she may have been rescued if only Ted had gone for help. In our last episode, we discussed the decades-long series of events that ultimately led to Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Kopechny attending that party on Chappaquiddick Island on the evening of July 18, 1969. 
Ted was the youngest son of Joseph Kennedy Sr., the New England millionaire and patriarch of the Kennedy family. Joseph Sr. groomed his sons to succeed in politics, but between 1944 and 1968, he saw his hopes dashed as each of his three eldest sons died tragically young. Joe Kennedy Jr. died in 1944 while on a combat mission in World War II. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, and Robert Bobby Kennedy was gunned down in 1968. All of a sudden, there was only Ted Kennedy, who had been expelled from Harvard for cheating and had a criminal record for reckless driving. Ted worked to make himself into the kind of man who could truly honor the Kennedy name. By 1969, it was widely assumed that he would make his first bid for the presidency against incumbent Richard Nixon in 1972. But then, Chappaquiddick happened. July 18, 1969, was supposed to be a day of reunion and celebration. Ted had organized a reunion of the six Boiler Room Girls, former staffers of Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign. Mary Jo was among these women. The day saw the attendees partake in a boat race and a barbecue before retiring to a rented cottage on Chappaquiddick Island to continue the party. Our first conspiracy theory concerns a time discrepancy in the official account of what happened on the night of the 18th. Could it be possible that there really was a missing hour in Ted's account? The theory of the missing hour comes primarily from Deputy Sheriff Christopher Look, who was on the roads on Chappaquiddick after midnight on the night of the incident. Recall, according to Ted Kennedy's testimony, he left the party at around 11.15 p.m. He encountered Mary Jo on his way out. She told him she was not feeling well and asked him to give her a ride back to her hotel. Chappaquiddick is not a large patch of land. It would have been only about two miles from the cottage to the ferry that would have taken Ted's car to the mainland. And it was only one mile from the cottage to the bridge where Ted ultimately crashed his car. Given that Ted believed he was driving at a speed of around 20 miles per hour, it should have been mere minutes between when he drove off from the party and when he crashed. But Deputy Sheriff Look's account paints a different picture. That night, Look had been working at a dance in the yacht club at Martha's Vineyard. He was there until after midnight and then made his way across the narrow channel to return to his home on Chappaquiddick Island. According to Look, he was approaching Chappaquiddick Road's one main intersection, the same intersection where Ted Kennedy would later claim to have made a wrong turn, when he spotted a dark four-door sedan pulled over at the side of the road. Look's headlights made it clear that a man was driving and a woman was sitting in the passenger seat. Look, assuming that the driver and passenger may be lost, got out of his vehicle and approached it. But as he got close, the car lurched into gear and barreled on down Dyke Road toward Dyke Bridge. This was at 12.40 in the morning, nearly an hour and a half after Kennedy had left the party with Mary Jo. Look didn't commit the car's full license plate to memory, but he did remember that it contained an L and two sevens. After the bizarre encounter, 
Look continued down Chappaquiddick Road and encountered some of the party guests outside the cabin. He asked if any of them knew about a black sedan. None of them could confirm whether it belonged to Kennedy, even though most of the people at that party likely knew that Kennedy had arrived in a black four-door Oldsmobile. But there are two facts that connect the car that Look had seen with Ted Kennedy's car. One, Ted Kennedy's license plate number was L78-207. It contained an L and two sevens, just like Look described. More damning is the fact that Look was one of the first responders on the scene when the car was discovered and pulled from the water on the morning of July 19th. At the scene, he noted that he had seen that same car the night before. If Look really saw Kennedy's car, that would mean a full 90 minutes passed between when Kennedy left the party with Mary Jo and when he crashed his car off Dyke Bridge. This naturally leads to the question of what happened during that missing time, and why would Kennedy lie about it? Was there more to the story of what happened that night before the crash? Could it be possible that Ted's intentions for Mary Jo were less than honorable? Or maybe even that she was dead before the car sank into the river? It's noteworthy that Kennedy claimed to have been back in his hotel by 2.25 in the morning. Given the distance between the crash site, the cottage, and Kennedy's own statement about how he recruited Paul Markham and Joe Gargan to try and rescue Mary Jo from the car, it would have been possible for him to be back in the hotel at that time if he had crashed the car at 11.15. But the timeline seems much less likely if he actually crashed the car closer to one in the morning. This particular theory deals simply with whether Ted Kennedy crashed when he says he did. Unfortunately, there's not much to go off of besides two conflicting accounts from 50 years ago. Although don't forget that Ted did speak to the innkeeper at his hotel, and that was believed to have happened between two and three in the morning. Honestly, what seems most likely is that both Ted Kennedy and Look are telling what they believe to be the truth. If Look got his time wrong, then it's entirely possible that he did see Ted and Mary Jo in the car, but at an earlier time than 12.40 a.m. But this still doesn't account for why Ted didn't mention pulling over on the side of the road. I'd give it a 9 out of 10 that the official story's timeline is false, at least to some degree. What I'm not sure about is whether that's intentional or just a byproduct of Ted failing to recall exact details about a night where he crashed his car, nearly drowned, and probably went into some degree of shock. Now, regardless of intent, Luke's story does raise some questions. Why was Kennedy pulled over in the first place? And if he was telling the truth, why did his version of the story not explain why he was pulled over that night? Could it be that he didn't remember pulling over in the first place? Or perhaps Ted needed to withhold the real reason that he was pulled over. Could it be that he realized he needed to sober up? Next, we'll look at the various conspiracies about Ted and Mary Jo's states of mind in those fateful final minutes before the crash. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Time is among the most important factors in the mysteries of what happened on Chappaquiddick Island on the evening of July 18, 1969. Because of the fact that Ted Kennedy waited 10 hours before alerting authorities, there was plenty of time for the important details of the case to be lost. Or, on a more sinister note, there was plenty of time for Kennedy to craft his story. Our second conspiracy theory is that Ted Kennedy was either intoxicated or otherwise impaired when he crashed the car. Even if he wasn't, this theory puts forth that something was off with his state of mind that night, and whatever it was directly led to the crash and Mary Jo's death. When the story of the accident first broke, there were two main questions that arose. What was Mary Jo Kopechny doing in Ted Kennedy's car? And... Was Ted Kennedy drunk? Ted Kennedy didn't drive. At least, he didn't often drive. Given his substantial personal fortune and high status as a United States senator, Ted had a chauffeur to cover most of his transportation needs. In fact, Ted's personal chauffeur, John Crimmins, was at the cottage party on Chappaquiddick Island on the night of the incident. Crimmins was a guest. That's considered to be true but he was also there in some capacity as Ted Kennedy's driver. So, when Ted Kennedy prepared to leave, why didn't Crimmins leave with him? When asked later, Ted stated that he didn't want to pull Crimmins away from the party to take him home. Crimmins was still enjoying his meal and the company. It's odd that Crimmins would be preoccupied with a meal since it was after 11 at night when Kennedy made to leave but maybe that really was the case given the full day of partying and relaxing. There's one thing to note here, though we're unsure what to read into it. According to the official account, Ted Kennedy retrieved his car keys from Crimmins after Mary Jo asked him for a ride home. This could mean that Ted was planning on having Crimmins drive him home until Mary Jo asked for a ride. If he wasn't planning on driving, he might have been drinking. Mary Jo, by all accounts, was a smart, capable woman, and it would have been very out of character for her to be drinking heavily at an event like this. But she hadn't driven herself to the party, and thus wouldn't have needed to worry about keeping an eye on her drinking. There are some uncorroborated reports that she had drunk at least some amount of alcohol at the party. She may not have been impaired, but she also may not have noticed if Ted was not in a condition to drive. Now, Crimmins was both Kennedy's driver and occasional aide. He knew the man well, and it's not a stretch to assume that he would have noticed if Ted was too drunk to drive himself. The fact that he handed over the keys to the car would seem to indicate that, as far as the partygoers were concerned, Ted was totally fine. The big discrepancy that may lead one to ask if Ted was drunk or not has to do with the geography of Chappaquiddick Island itself. 
Chappaquiddick has one main road, one that Ted and Mary Jo had both ridden along multiple times throughout that day. Chappaquiddick Road tracks along about two miles from the ferry point before making a right turn into the more residential area. That turn occurs at the intersection with Dyke Road. Again, this was really the only major road on the island. And even at night, Kennedy would have known that to get to the ferry from the cottage, he would have had to just follow Chappaquiddick Road, keep left at the fork, and then take it all the way to the ferry. So how did he instead manage to turn left onto Dyke Road? And moreover, why did he stay on Dyke Road after the turn? Dyke Road was unpaved, and it should have been evident immediately to Ted that he'd made a wrong turn. Of course, if he'd been drunk, that might explain how he'd be able to get so turned around. But it's also possible that Ted had not done much driving over the island. Crimmins was with him, and it's possible that Ted had been preoccupied with some matter or another as Crimmins handled the driving, and thus Ted wasn't as familiar with the roads as he should have been. But again, if that was the case, why would Crimmins let Ted drive on the unfamiliar island roads at night? Ted was asked this very question when he was interrogated by police after he confessed to fleeing the scene of the accident. According to him, he'd actually never been on Chappaquiddick Island prior to that day, and so he didn't know the roads at all. He'd visited Martha's Vineyard plenty of times in his life, but never Chappaquiddick. The question of how Ted Kennedy came to make that wrong turn and why he continued to drive at a speed of 20 miles per hour down an unpaved road becomes more complicated when you consider the testimony of Deputy Sheriff Look. Remember, Look claims that he spotted the black sedan that was likely Kennedy's pulled over near the intersection of Chappaquiddick Road and Dyke Road. He exited his vehicle and approached, but the sedan shot away before he could get a good look at the driver. It's been suggested, though obviously not proven, that Ted Kennedy saw Look approaching the car. Either because he knew he was drunk or because he knew the optics of being caught alone in a car with a woman who wasn't his wife would be potentially damaging to his career. Kennedy realized he couldn't let Look identify him. So he put the car in gear and pulled away, not realizing that he had taken a wrong turn down Dyke Road toward Dyke Bridge. He was so focused on not being seen that he didn't track how fast he was driving or the direction he was heading until it was too late and he drove off the bridge. Of course, this theory hits something of a snag when we consider what happened after the crash. If Ted Kennedy was so drunk that he managed to crash his car into the pond, how on earth was he cogent enough to actually get himself out of the car? Maybe he got lucky. The question of how Ted Kennedy managed to free himself from the submerged vehicle while Mary Jo remains stuck will likely never be answered. Additionally, we'll never know the real reason why Kennedy didn't stop at any houses on his trek back to the party to get help. The walk from the crash site back to the cottage was roughly one mile. Ted Kennedy passed at least one house that had its porch light on, and he also passed the firehouse on his way back. It's been stated, though not totally confirmed, that he passed up to four houses that had their porch lights on during his walk back to the cottage. 
One of the most damning actions Kennedy took in this story is not running up to any of these homes and asking to use the telephone to call for help. Kennedy would later say he was exhausted and in shock from the near-death experience of the crash. His mind wasn't in the right place, and thus he didn't grasp that he should have rushed to the nearest house and immediately sought help. But if Kennedy was drunk, it would also explain why he didn't talk to anyone on his way back to the cottage until he rendezvoused with Gargan and Markham. Kennedy didn't inform the police of the accident until 10 hours after it occurred. Because of the time lapse, there was no way for anyone to administer a sobriety test. All they had to go off of was Ted Kennedy's word. And so, barring a confession from Kennedy admitting that he'd been impaired, there was no way, nor will there ever be a way, to determine if he was drunk when he got behind the wheel of his Oldsmobile. In his statement to the public on July 25, 1969, Ted re-emphasized that he was not intoxicated. He made sure to note that his doctors had retroactively diagnosed him with a concussion and with shock, but he didn't want to use these conditions to justify his actions. How noble of him. And that was it. Ted Kennedy stuck to that official story for the rest of his life. And no one who was at the party ever came forward to make an on-the-record statement that they witnessed Ted drinking that night. And so, all we can really do is guess the validity of this theory. I'll give this one six out of 10. It's impossible to prove, and it's completely plausible, that Ted Kennedy really was just that unfamiliar with the roads on Chappaquiddick Island. But consider the numerous events that raise questions. Ted likely thought he wouldn't have to drive himself that night since his driver was present at the party. He was more than likely spotted by Deputy Sheriff Look, but drove off before he could be identified. He somehow failed to grasp that he was on the wrong road despite the lack of pavement, and he wasn't able to stop the car fast enough even after Dyke Bridge became visible in his headlights. He didn't alert anyone that might be able to help rescue Mary Jo, and he only confessed to fleeing the scene after it would be impossible to determine his level of sobriety. Well, that's a lot of damning facts, all of which can be explained by intoxication. Ted Kennedy claimed he wasn't in his right mind after the crash. He may have actually been telling the truth, but lied about the reason. There's one more major question about Chappaquiddick that really shows the level to which Ted Kennedy's actions were unforgivable. That question is, how long did Mary Jo Kopechny live after the crash? We'll discuss that and the likelihood of a cover-up after this. Now, the conclusion to the story. We've discussed the inconsistencies in the official account of what happened in the late hours of the evening on Chappaquiddick Island, and we've discussed the likelihood that Ted was drinking on the night of the accident. However, all of these unanswered questions still don't address one of the key questions in this incident. How much was Ted Kennedy to blame for what happened? Let's take a second and assume that the official story is as Ted told it. He got turned around on the road, crashed the car, thought he was doing everything he could to save Mary Jo, but was so shocked by the crash that he wasn't thinking straight. 
is inaction almost becomes palatable if you accept that all these things are true. Assuming that he was correct in thinking Mary Jo really did perish just minutes after the car hit the water. Our last theory examines the actual death of Mary Jo Kopechny, the confirmed cause of death, and the question of how long she may have survived in the car after Ted abandoned her. Recall the generally known facts of the crash. Ted Kennedy was driving, Mary Jo was in the passenger seat, he was tearing down the unpaved, unlit dike road at around 20 miles an hour when he spotted the end of the road marked by Dyke Bridge in the pond beyond. Ted couldn't hit the brakes fast enough, and the car crashed over the edge of the drop-off and hit the water. It turned over as it submerged, landing on its roof at the foot of the pond 10 feet below the surface. Ted was able to get free from the car and swim to the surface. He claimed to have swum back down to the car a number of times to try and free Mary Jo, but he was disoriented from the shock of the crash and the water was pitch black, so he couldn't see her well enough to help. By the time Ted decided to leave the scene and return to the cottage, several minutes had passed. He'd assumed that too much time had passed since the car sunk below the surface and that there was no way that Mary Jo could still be alive. She must have drowned. This conclusion also makes up for part of Ted's justification for not telling more people about the crash until the next morning. With the darkness of the night and the cold water, he worried that if he started to tell the other party guests, it might prompt a wider rescue attempt and even more people could have gotten hurt. The claim that he was protecting the other women at the party from sharing Mary Jo's fate doesn't really hold up at all. It doesn't especially given the fact that Ted passed a firehouse on his way back to the cottage and could have roused trained rescue professionals easily. But the extent of Ted's negligence became more complicated after the car, with Mary Jo Kopechny's body still inside, was retrieved the next morning. On the morning of July 19th, while Ted was mulling over his options at his hotel, a fisherman and his son spotted the car on the bottom of the pond. Fire and rescue were summoned to examine and recover the car. At approximately 8.45 in the morning, John Farrar, captain of the fire rescue unit, arrived with scuba gear. He swam down to the car and found Mary Jo's body inside. He removed her from the vehicle and carried her back to the shore. The subsequent investigation published the position Mary Jo's body was in when she was found. Donald Mills, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy, declared drowning as the cause of death. This would be in line with the story that Ted Kennedy told. But there were dissenters. In John Farrar's account, he describes Mary Jo's body as he found her. She was in the back seat of the car, with her hands clenched around the underside of the seats and her head pressed against the back footstool. Her position in the back seat is likely part of the evidence used when proposing the theory that Mary Jo was asleep in the back seat of the car. But Farrar offers a different explanation. Farrar believed that Mary Jo managed to climb in the back seat of the submerged overturned car. Her head placement indicated that she was positioning herself to keep her head in an air bubble within the car. With that in mind, 
It's possible that the cause of death wasn't drowning. Rather, Mary Jo suffocated as she slowly used up all of the oxygen in the car. This also raises the morbid question of how long Mary Jo was down there, struggling to breathe, waiting for help that never came. In Farrar's own words, if Ted Kennedy had called for help immediately, he could have gotten Mary Jo out of the car within 25 minutes of the crash. Farrar went so far as to estimate that Mary Jo could have lived for up to two hours after the crash and thus could have been saved if only Ted had gone for help. Given how explosive that information is, one wonders whether it came up during the subsequent investigation and trial. Well, it did, but only in the sense that Farrar was not allowed to testify his opinions about how Mary Jo could have lived for longer. Farrar would state in interviews that he wanted to give his statement to Ted Kennedy's prosecutor, but he was never summoned. Kennedy justified leaving the scene of the accident by claiming he was tired, in shock, and that enough time had passed that he was sure Mary Jo had drowned. We know this for sure. However long Mary Jo did manage to survive down there, she'd been dead for hours when her body was finally recovered. Then again, is there a sliding scale of blame dependent on how long it took Mary Jo Kopechny to die? Is Ted Kennedy less culpable for what happened if Mary Jo was already dead when he fled the scene? The number's not exact, but there have been cases in which a drowned person has been resuscitated up to 40 or even 50 minutes after they stopped breathing. The window for recovery can be even longer if hypothermia is in play. The water around Chappaquiddick Island would have likely been in the low to high 60s on that night, though it could have been potentially lower since the sun had been set for several hours. Though it's not freezing temperatures, it is possible for hypothermia to set in if a body is submerged in water of that temperature for a prolonged amount of time. All of this is to say that if Ted Kennedy had gone immediately for help, it's entirely plausible that Mary Jo could have been rescued from the car and resuscitated. With the right medical care, she may have even been able to make a full recovery. We'll never know what was possible because, due to Ted Kennedy's inaction, Mary Jo wasn't recovered until 10 hours after she went in the water. There's no rating for this one. Whether Mary Jo survived for hours or lasted only minutes doesn't really change Ted Kennedy's actions. Even if Mary Jo died quickly after the crash, as Ted suspected, he should have done everything possible to save her. He didn't, and now we'll never know if Mary Jo could have been rescued. We're going to wrap up by going over some of the smaller alternative theories about what really happened on the night of July 18th. To start, we're going to examine one theory that further removes blame from Kennedy on account of the fact that he wasn't even driving the car when it crashed. According to this line of thinking, after Kennedy spotted Look, he pulled over on Dyke Road and got out of the car. His plan was to walk back to the cottage and get a ride from someone else, leaving Mary Jo to drive Ted's car back to the hotel. Mary Jo was unfamiliar with the bulky, unwieldy Oldsmobile. Like Ted, 
She didn't even have a sense of where she was on the road until it was too late and she had driven off the bridge and into the water. Ted was still walking back toward the cottage when the crash happened. He rushed to the scene and tried to save Mary Jo, but couldn't. And the rest of the events generally carried out as the official story says they did. This one, of course, raises the question of why Ted would claim he was driving the car if he really wasn't. Wouldn't the fact that he hadn't even been in the car help absolve him of guilt? The car was still his. Ted might have suspected that few people would believe that he would have let Mary Jo drive his car alone. Claiming to have been driving would have actually raised fewer questions than telling the truth that he hadn't been in the car at all. Mm, This one feels a little flimsy. What seems more likely is that the more outlandish theories like this one came about as a result of the gap in understanding. Because we simply don't know every detail of what happened in the minutes leading up to the accident, it is possible to put out a wide range of alternative series of events. This next one, however, might actually have some weight to it. According to one theory, Mary Jo Kopechny actually tried to leave the party much earlier than 11.15. She was tired and may have even been suffering from a headache. She knew she wasn't in a state to drive, and she didn't want to bother any of her fellow guests. So she stepped outside the cottage and crawled into the back of Ted's Oldsmobile to take a nap. Ted drove, made a wrong turn, and crashed the car, all while being unaware that Mary Jo was asleep in his back seat. Now, this may seem to help absolve him further and explain why he waited to report the accident, There would have been much less of a rush to get the police involved if Ted didn't know there was someone trapped in the car. But again, we come back to the question of why did Ted Kennedy never clarify that? Additionally, both Gargan and Markham said that Ted had told them about Mary Jo on the night of the accident, right after it happened. All in all, we think the theories that modify who was driving and what Ted Kennedy knew are pretty flimsy. The official story, Ted was driving, Mary Jo was in the passenger seat, and Ted knew that she was still in the car when he failed to report the accident, still seems most likely. The remaining question, though, concerns one of the most damning mysteries of this entire incident. Hearing all of this, you have to wonder how on earth Kennedy managed to walk away from this event, serve no jail time, and continue on to a successful decades-long career as a United States Senator. In interviews conducted in the years after the Chappaquiddick incident, John Farrar and others indicate that there was some kind of cover-up. Our final tag conspiracy tackles the question of whether there was a cover-up in the Chappaquiddick incident. I want to say outright, I don't think there was, at least not in the way that some do. The fact that Ted Kennedy was tried for the crime of leaving the scene of an accident and even sentenced to jail time, albeit in a suspended sentence, kind of removes this event from cover-up territory. This feels more like old money New England exerting influence to minimize the damage. After all, no one at the party knew that Mary Jo had left in the hours after it happened, since she left her purse behind. Kennedy's driver, John Crimmins, was at the party. 
It was a totally possible course of action for Ted to insist that Crimmins jump in the water and then tell everyone that Crimmins was the one driving the car during the crash. Kennedy also could have put Markham or Gargan up to admitting that they were the ones behind the wheel. He allegedly did this, but that story comes from disgruntled residents of Martha's Vineyard, and unfortunately, there's little truth to back it up. We don't think there was a sinister cover-up in Chappaquiddick because the car was found and linked to Kennedy before he would have been able to organize one. Now, that isn't to say that he wasn't considering it. Consider the fact that he made a point to speak with the innkeeper of his hotel at two in the morning in fresh clothes, effectively establishing something like an alibi. But then again, why go to the police if that was his plan? Even after the car was linked to him, Kennedy could have claimed to have not been the driver, used the conversation with the innkeeper as his support that he was in his hotel, and have one of his men take the fall for the accident. Maybe he didn't because he knew through his lawyers, his friends, his power as a senator, and the influence of the Kennedy name, he would turn out just fine. And he did. Though the Chappaquiddick scandal did prevail over Kennedy's future efforts to run for president, and likely is the key reason he never made it to the Oval Office, it's not like Kennedy's life was ruined. In the aftermath of the incident, during his televised speech, Kennedy called on the people of Massachusetts to help him work through the incident. They did, by re-electing him consistently over the next four decades. The people of this state are entitled to representation by men who inspire their utmost confidence. For this reason, I would understand full well why some might think it right for me to resign. And so I ask you tonight, the people of Massachusetts, to think this through with me. In facing this decision, I seek your advice. In making it, I seek your prayers. The Chappaquiddick incident is one of the most famous scandals in American political history. There are few instances in the history of our country where a sitting politician was embroiled in a case of manslaughter and managed to save some of his career in the fallout. We'll never know the full, true story of what happened on that dark night in July. The two people who did are dead. And in their wake, all we can do is wonder. Overall, there's a clear theory that seems to be the absolute right one. The missing hour does seem to be real. It's more than likely that Ted Kennedy's timeline of events regarding when he left the party and when he crashed is not accurate. And the deputy sheriff look did spot his car pulled over on the side of the road after midnight. However, we can't state whether this was deliberate deception on Kennedy's part or just a false recollection of events. If we accept that the missing hour is real, it also becomes easier to accept that Ted was drunk or at least somewhat impaired that night and that it factored into the crash and his actions in the hours following. But again, it's impossible to say for sure. In the case of Chappaquiddick, the official story likely isn't the full truth, but with 50 years come and gone since it happened, it's the only truth we're ever going to get. Thank you. 
Thanks again for tuning in to our Conspiracy Theories Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Parcast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Conspiracy Theories next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.